Howdy folks, welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb, and I am the Redneck, and you bet I've gone green, and I'm trying to convince you to do it too. Uh, and as you know, we come onto this platform once a week. Uh, we're on YouTube, we're on Rumble. We also record an audio podcast and make that available to you. So I'm gonna ask you however you're watching, if you're watching live, you can participate by dropping a comment and we'll integrate you into the show. But regardless, I'm gonna ask you, please like, comment and share this. I know everybody says that. And the reason everybody says that is because that's the only way to break out of the corporate algorithm to control what is being heard. Because remember, this is non-corporately filtered news, information and analysis that is designed to not just have a ain't it awful conversation, but to actually win a new world. I always like to remind folks that we follow the no feel do model uh, here on Redneck Gone Green. In other words, we ask ourselves, what do we want y'all to know about? And that we want you to know that we are past too many tipping points that continuing to just tweak things at the margin is not gonna get her done and that we've gotta make transformational change. That means we want you to feel both a sense of urgency, but also a sense of genuine hope that there is in fact something that can be done because what we want you to do is to participate in this conversation and be inspired to do the things that we're talking about on the show. Because every week it is our task and challenge to bring you examples concretely of people doing the work where they live, work, play and pray to not just complain about things and not, although there's plenty of things to complain about and not just to vision a new world, although visioning that new world is possible, but we're also talking to people who are doing it on the ground, actually making that change happen. And this week, our guest is a perfect example of that. Emily Kawano is the founder and co-coordinator of the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network and co-director of the Wellspring Cooperative Corporation, which is seeking to create a new community-based job creation program in her community in Springfield, Massachusetts. Wellspring's goal is to use what they call anchor institutions to purchase and create a network of worker-owned businesses located in the inner city that will provide both job training and entry-level jobs to both unemployed and underemployed people, specifically through worker-owned cooperatives. Emily is an economist by training and has served in academia. In fact, she serves as the, served as the director of the Center for Popular Economics from 2004 to 2013. Before that, she actually taught economics at Smith College. She's worked at the, as the National Economic Justice Representative for the American Friends Service Committee. You may know, remember, be more familiar with it as the Quakers. And in Northern Ireland, she founded a popular e economics program with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. So Emily's got a very impressive resume and is a personal friend. Emily Kuano, welcome to Redneck Gone Green. 
So I don't know what just happened, Emily, but I actually did not uh, did not hear you. So let's try that again. Because um, I was there. muted. Sorry oh, about that. <laughs> that is the that is the proverbial refrain of COVID, isn't it? Uh, you're muted. So Emily, yeah. let's start again. Welcome to Redneck Gone Grain. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. All right. So listen, Emily, I kind of like you heard that introduction. I set a high bar for you, lady. So what I want you to do, though, is to start big picture because the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network is where I I remember meeting you uh, at the U.S. Social Forum back in what was that 2007 in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. And I remember you and your colleagues, Julie Matai and a host of others had an entire series of events that y'all did around cooperative economics or solidarity economics. So before we get to Wellspring, I want you to share with Redneck Gone Green viewers and listeners, what the heck is the Solidarity Economy Network and where did it come from? Right. Okay. So yeah, Solidarity Economy Network um, emerged out of that U.S. social forum, indeed in Atlanta in 2007. Um, I was at the Center for Popular Economics at the time. I was the director there and we helped to organize a whole track of workshops on solidarity economy. I'll say what that is in a second. Um, and we also held a couple of meetings in addition to those workshops. And out of those meetings uh, emerged or was launched the US Solidarity Economy Network. At the time in 2007, I would say that the term and the framework of the solidarity economy was pretty much completely unknown. Um, and so I'm really happy to say that now, 15 years later or so, it's a term that's very widely known in progressive sort of on the left uh, social movements and organizations. So you know, you yeah. know, that that was certainly true for me, Emily, because I remember back in 2007, I had not heard that term specifically. I'm gonna be honest with you. And uh, Folks, I have to admit, so I'm the co-coordinator of the U currently of the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network with Emily Kawano. And Emily, back in 2007, I remember thinking, listen, I'm glad that that's all well and good. And I'm glad that, that there are people trying to do co-ops, but I'm a serious revolutionary. I'm trying to restructure all of society. And the reality is uh, I was... I, over the last, what, uh, you know, 15 years, I have not only been won over, I've actually, like, I'm all the way in. And the reason I'm all the way in is because it's not just tweaking capitalism, is it? Right. Um, solidarity economy is really clear about where we stand on that, uh, that spectrum. Are you do you believe that capitalism can be reformed to be a more just and sustainable and democratic and cooperative world? Or do you, do you believe that we have to move beyond capitalism? So solidarity economy is very, very clear that we have to move beyond. There are too many things sort of intrinsic to capitalism. Uh, we're not gonna get there where we wanna get to through reforming capitalism. So uh, yeah, that's that's something that we're um, we're very clear about. And you know, there are a lot of different strands of trying to make the world a better place. Um, and a lot of them fudge on that issue, right? Let, let's just do good things and support 
support good works, but without that clarity about where you're trying to go in the long term, it's pretty likely you'll, you'll end up reforming capitalism and sometimes even strengthening capitalism by, make, by reforming it and making it a little maybe kinder, a little more gentle, but it'll actually reinforce capitalism. And we don't believe that ultimately that's the way to go. And I'm going to use this opportunity then to say, all right, so so tell us what are the, the core principles uh, of the solidarity economy framework? Right. So solidarity economy is absolutely grounded in values. And those values will look slightly different, different in different places, different countries, different regions. The U.S. solidarity economy network uses five. So um, solidarity, cooperation, mutualism, all that kind of stuff. So that's one. Uh, participatory democracy. So certainly beyond the voting, the voting booth, right? Democracy in uh, communities, democracy in the workplace, democracy, right? So that really bringing it into all aspects of our lives. Um, sustainability, um, pretty self-explanatory these days. Equity, we talk about equity in all dimensions. So race, class, gender, ableism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the last one is pluralism, which is very important. It means that this is not a one size fits all model. We don't have a blueprint. We don't claim to have the right answer. There are many different approaches uh, that fit under this big tent. And we have to be humble. And instead of throwing stones at uh, fellow travelers um, and saying, no, you're wrong, my, my way is right, right? We, we should be respectful, see what works, hear each other out, engage in good debate, um, good principled, constructive debate, um, and, and build, our, build our path through these explorations. So Emily, I'm going to back up and really go deep on this pluralism piece, because for me, this is one of the things that is both most inspiring and can sometimes be the most challenging, right? Because the solidarity economy principles are, as you say, very clear. There's a framework and solidarity economy as a framework is explicitly post-capitalist. But the framework itself says pluralism. Mm -hmm. try other things, mm -hmm. uh, be willing to be open. And that includes reforming, right? So one mm -hmm. of the things that I think is has been incredibly inspiring to me, and I'll admit sometimes challenging, is to hold the space to say, looky here, solidarity economy is post-capitalist, but you can do things within the capitalist framework that still are solidarity economy practices and we're going to applaud and lift that up and i i feel like that tension a creative tension can really be a, a spot of some real juiciness yeah people are in different places about this some people will try to will will really try to draw a hard line me personally uh the way i look at it is um a reform is post-capitalist if that's your long if that's where you're headed so um i often use the example of the fight for 15 which you know if you're on the left you can't argue with that of course you're going to support the you know raising the the minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour um if that's where you end right if that's your end goal just the fight for 15 get that 15 dollars an hour wage um, I think I would say that's reformist, right? It's still completely within a capitalist 
context, you're making things a little bit better. Um, but you know, capitalism is very malleable and can absorb that and and move on. Um, if your goal is to fight for better working conditions, but your long-term goal is to transform the system, then you'll use that fight for 15 to build towards real transformation. So I think most things, most reforms can be transformative or non-reformist reforms. If you have that long-term vision and you know that you're moving beyond capitalism, if that's always the context within which you're working, um, then I consider it a, a transformative reform. And, you know, Emily, that reminds me uh, that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, credited with the New Deal that had some fantastic reforms. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm looking forward to get some of that good socialized medicine uh, when I turn 65. I mean, you know, I, I've yep. been paying into Social Security. I mean, you know, we can go down the list of those, you know, really quality reforms that made people's lives better. And I remember my mama and papa talking very specifically about how that made their lives better. My papa actually went to work uh, uh, during the world, uh, the, pardon me, the uh, WPA, right? Uh -huh. But FDR actually said, I saved capitalism. Like yeah. I don't know, he said, I don't know why uh, all the industrialists and business leaders are so angry with me. I saved capitalism and I would argue he did. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. And so I think that this great is great example, right? And and so Emily, like I, I kind of uh, we've had lots of, of guests that have done a great job of critiquing the current capitalist system, uh, and then offering visions for you know uh, like a new world. I set you up though with Wellspring as an example of somebody who is putting these principles and values into practice, right? So now that we've talked about the solidarity economy framework, uh, we've talked about the, especially the pluralism piece and, and what that means to us and why it's so important. I'm going to challenge you to give us an example there in Western Massachusetts about what it looks like to apply these, these uh, principles and values. Yeah. So I I went from being the executive director of the Center for Popular Economics. So we're a collective of progressive economists, progressive to radical economists um, that are all about helping people better understand how the economy works or doesn't work. And I think we do a we had always done a bang up job critiquing capitalism and we did a less good job um, helping people imagine and engage with what is the alternative until we really turn to a solidarity economy framework. Um, that was really helpful for us. And we went from embracing that as part of our bag of teaching, teaching tools and frameworks to thinking about um, getting our hands dirty, getting involved locally in economic development work. And so we were thinking about applied research uh, to support solidarity economy initiatives and as well as actually developing solidarity economy initiatives. And so we started um, at the time I, I met my co-director, Fred Rose, um, and we started shopping around this idea about 
building on um, an anchor institution model, which is which is um, at the time was being pioneered by Evergreen Cooperatives in Cleveland. Um, so building these relationships with anchor institutions to develop cooperative businesses that could meet the needs of the anchor institutions. So maybe the anchor institutions then had some bragging rights about buying local and supporting local job creation and wealth building. So we started shopping around that idea and um, that part started to take off. So there were a number of years where um, I was working at CPE, but uh, some of my time was spent uh, building up Wellspring. Um, eventually, the Center for Popular Economics decided to stick with a popular economics education and not do the research and not do the economic development. And, and in 2013, I switched over uh, to work full time at Wellspring. An example of where the, the vision was important. Um, so I was absolutely bringing a solidarity economy framework with me, um, but that's not that's not where we built our collaboration, right? I did not start talking about solidarity economy for quite quite a long time. It was years before I started even talking about that because the people that we were working with, anchor institutions, the hospitals, the colleges, and then other other folks in in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, I wouldn't say most of them were particularly radical, right? So we started uh, with with talking about cooperative businesses and being owned by workers and you know democracy, and it um, that was appealing to people. We talked about wealth creation, so that if the if the co-op thrives, workers get to uh, engage in profit sharing and build up some 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 wealth. That was appealing, right? Like we got zero pushback on that. And in fact, but at the same at the same time, there were people um, in the initial circle that were saying things like, "This is great. This is great." Like leveraging anchor institution purchasing. Um, but look, there's this small business and that small business, and why don't we support them, right? So they were about local small businesses, and we really had to push back and hold the line on no we're committed to cooperatives. And we didn't necessarily say cooperatives are not a capitalist enterprise, right? We didn't necessarily go into that, but we had to hold our ground. I really believe that uh, it, we could easily have lost that thread. We could easily have been about just any small business, whether it's a cooperative and democratically owned and managed, or just any old local small business and get that anchor institution support that we could have easily fallen into that because there was a lot of pushback in the early days about that. So it's just an example where um, that long-term um, vision of where, knowing where you're going is really, really important. You know, uh, it really is. And uh, again, that's that creative tension around being genuinely pluralistic, but having a core set of principles to make sure uh, that, that uh, you know, you don't lose that. I want to circle back about a couple of things. One, I want you to ex explain a little more about the anchor institution strategy and what that means. So if folks are not familiar already with the Evergreen Cooperative in Cleveland, uh, just like imagine somebody doesn't know what anchor institutions mean. 
Walk us through that again, please. Right. So an anchor institution is is usually a large institution, often eds and meds. So educational institutions and healthcare systems, hospitals that are anchored in place. Uh, gen like we only work with in terms of our anchor institutions, we work with nonprofits. Um, so they're anchored in place, right? Those those colleges, those universities, those hospitals, they're not going anywhere. They're not picking up stakes and moving to someplace with lower, lower wages, right? They're anchored in place. Uh, but they're also anchors of the local economy. So oh, like between UMass and like the uh, major healthcare system, Bay State, I mean, it's a those are two of the largest employers in, in Western Mass. Um, so that's what it means uh, to work with these anchor institutions. And it's a long process of building that relationship. We spent a good two years just building those relationships and also doing the research, like what are what do they purchase? What do they purchase where we might be able to form a co-op around? And also, what do they purchase where they're pur purchasing from far away so that maybe we could build a local supplier? Folks, you're listening and or watching Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the redneck and I've gone green and I'm trying to convince you to do it too. And by the way, that does mean Green Party, but it also means deep ecology. Uh, it means rethinking how we live, work, play, and pray together in community. It means, uh, I, I don't make any bones about it. I'm trying to red the greens and I'm trying to green the reds, right? I'm trying to actually normalize the idea that we can meet all of our needs to not just survive, but to thrive, live rich and meaningful lives uh, without exploiting anyone, without allowing anybody to exploit us. And get this, it could literally be done in a truly ecologically sustainable way in genuine balance with mother earth. And here's the kick y'all. That's not a new way of doing things. That's the ancient way of doing things. This is how human beings have lived on planet earth for about 97,000 of the hundred thousand years that we've been on this planet as homo sapiens, more or less. I would argue that this solidarity economy, way of doing things of like actually doing commerce and and creating things for use value for us to use and doing it together collectively that's our birthright that's how we're supposed to live that's actually how our dna and in fact ethnobiologists and paleo uh, like everybody will that's looked at it has basically said if humans had not been cooperators we would have basically perished as a species literally cooperation has been what it took for us to go. We're speaking with Emily Kawano. She is the co-coordinator of the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network and the co-director of the Wellspring Cooperative Co Corporation. Emily, I want to circle or dig deep onto one thing. You mentioned that there were a lot of folk who got really excited about, okay, let's do this, but hey, look at all these small businesses. Let's support local small businesses. And you and others really held the line there. And one of the things that I want to uh, uh, invite you to talk about is what some of the, the good methodological-based science shows about worker-owned cooperatives. Like, like I, I remember the first, like, worker-owned co-ops, like, appeal to my principles, but 
one of the things that I was astounded by was the amount of research that shows worker-owned cooperatives last longer by far uh, than traditional uh, businesses. Can you talk about that and why? Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of the data show that worker cooperatives are have better survival rates, right? Survival rates for small businesses is really high. I mean, depending, the, the estimates vary, but it can be as, as high as 80% in the first five years. And worker co-ops do better than that, like survive, tend to survive longer. Um, they tend to have much less turnover, better promotional um, opportunities. Um, they tend to be um, have better benefits, um, better wages, <laughs> and better wages in their in that same sector. Um, they this is an interesting one. They tend to to correlate with more civic engagement. I mean, I think because once you get used to um, having a voice in your workplace, it can spill over into you know your your life in the community. Um, yeah, in general, like the multiplier effect, how much the dollar circulates locally tends to be higher for co-ops because they will have a focus. To, they'll do their best to spend locally. Um, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of, oh, job satisfaction um, is is consistently higher. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of data that show that um, that they do better than traditional capitalist businesses. Um, there are, there's plenty of ways to go wrong. It's still a small business, right? It still has to contend with all the challenges of, of, of a small business. But, and, and it, there are also challenges that come with um, collectively managing, which doesn't mean it's necessarily a flat, management style right there can still be a, a hierarchy within a co-op but there is much more voice built into a worker co-op than you know in a traditional business where there's no guarantee that workers have any voice any rights at all and that's the thing that i think it's important like look you talked about the the multiplier some economists i think call it the elasticity of money how often you know, dollars circulate in, in a local economy. And it's really interesting to me. Uh, I remember, I think I, I first came across that as an economist, you were probably, you know, steeped in it. But I was exposed to it probably about the time I met you uh, through the folks at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Mm -hmm. And I remember di diving deep on it. And they actually showed, again, with good methodological uh, research data, that a dollar spent on the same exact good or service. If you spend that dollar, uh, a corporate franchise, a local corporate franchise, it tends to circulate about two up to three times in the community before that dollar leaves. If you spend that exact same dollar on the exact same good or service uh, in a locally owned business, it tends to circulate about seven times. So like before it, it leaves. And then when I, the folks at the Democracy at Work Institute uh, did a, a, a study on the, that uh, money, uh, again, I think of it as elasticity, yeah, the multiplier. I may be using the word incorrectly. I see, uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, you can't see Emily, the economist, uh, 
uh, I think I've used the word incorrectly, uh, but I'll just <laughs> say that the multiplier, the cooperative multiplier, it doubles that. It's literally about 15 times. And I, I remember asking why, and the answer was because the locally owned independent business just naturally does that, right? Uh, but co-ops tend to have a, like, frankly, a, a principled ideological position, seek it out. And so it ends up multiplying even more. And this is the thing that became really fascinating to me. And again, I got one over. Like if you had told me 20 years ago, you know, that I would be like a, a co-op champion and that I'd spend a lot of time incubating co-ops, uh, I would have literally said, look, you know, co-ops are all well and good, uh, but we can't co-op our way past capitalism any more than we can recycle our way into ecological sustainability. And I'll say, I still believe that, but I'll tell you this, if we create co-ops with the intentionality of supplanting and transitioning out of the capitalist framework, I think we might actually be able to do that. I think that we could literally replace the entire economic system uh, if we actually show, not just tell, but show people, this is what it's like to be an empowered worker. This is what it feels like to actually own your own labor, to own your own mind, to be able to participate in these sort of things. So to me, Emily, like this idea of having a core set of principles and values and then applying them in the real world with people who may not share, you know, our collective vision, that's both the sweet spot, but it can also be pretty rocky sometimes. Yeah, you know, I do want to say I agree with you that we're not going to co-op our way uh, out of capitalism. Um, and I do really, really, really want to emphasize that solidarity economy is not equivalent to co-ops because that is a misimpression that a lot of people have, that it's just co-ops. It's not. It's a whole universe of things, some of which is market-based. It's it's about uh you know, producing things for sale, but some of it is about is asking ourselves, what can we on a commu local community level produce for ourselves, right? It might be growing our own food. It might be, uh, you know, mutual aid. It might be tool shares, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's a whole host of examples of things that align with solid practices. I call them solidarity economy practices that align with the solidarity economy principles. And that is the solidarity economy, right? This whole huge foundation that we have to build on. But right now, all these things, so uh, co-ops and participatory budgeting and uh, public banks and local currencies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There's really a lot. Um, they tend to be somewhat either invisible or uh, they're treated like cute little things. Like, oh, that's a cute little co-op because it's seen in isolation from the others. And if solidarity economy is all about creating a framework or maybe a skeleton to start knitting these different practices together so that we can see that there's this huge foundation. There is the a foundation of a different kind of economy and world um, that exists. It, it just doesn't operate. Um, the dominant system is still capitalism. The lot dominant logic that we learn is still capitalist. Um, 
Yeah. You know, Emily, uh, you you wrote a seminal essay uh, that really uh, helped to win me over, and I think a lot of other people. Uh, and in that, I remember you described the difference between, and I remember as an undergraduate coming across uh, uh, Homo economicus. Uh, and I, I'm going to invite you, uh, see if you remember your own writing, to tell us who and what Homo economicus is and uh, your reframe uh, of that person. Yeah, so economists, right, like economics, which is a study of the economy, economic theory, it's a story, right? It's just one story. Uh, there have been other stories. There have been other economic systems. Capitalism is still relatively young, couple, you know, couple hundred years, couple hundred plus years. Um, so pretty young. Anyway, capitalism tells a story, and the it every story needs a character, and the central character in capitalism is Homo economicus, rational man, and literally man. Um, so the assumption is that we are all um, rational, calculating, self-interested, and that we're always doing this, this calculation about what's going to give us the biggest bang for our buck. Or and our, it's always the individual, effort. by the way. Let's be clear always, about homo economicus. It's like yes, private very, maximization for myself, like homo economicus is a really self-centered, yes. selfish yes. SOB. And yet the theory is that by everybody behaving like homo economicus and pursuing their own individual self-interest, we will get the greatest good for, for everybody. Right. right. That's, I, mean, that's I, I gotta capitalism. tell you, in what world uh, have we ever said, like, if we just let everybody be greedy for themselves, that somehow everybody comes out like, that's like on its face. That seems crazy, right? But well, there's a whole economic theory about why that is, and there is a certain there is a certain story there, right? That if you're a bad act, so if you have a business and you're a bad actor, you're trying to you're acting really in a greedy manner, but you're doing it by cheating people. Eventually, some competitor is going to come along, and everybody's going to flock to them. So that's the kind of you can be self-interested, but you will be forced to behave in a somewhat principled way. Otherwise, you're going to get wiped out. Now, we know that that actually isn't what's happening, especially once you um, once you obtain sort of monopoly power, then you're free to be as abusive be as, as you want because there's no alternative, right? Um, and you can prevent those alternatives or those competitors from springing up and giving you any trouble. So anyway, there's lots of problems with homo economicus, but um, but the assumption is that we are also oh, also competitive, right? And in a whole bunch of disciplines from anthropology to sociology to biology to physics even, right? Um, there is more and more and more evidence that um, we are hardwired to cooperate. Yes, I would not ever deny that there is some of homo economicus in all of us, right? We all have some self-interested motivation, but we are also hardwired to cooperate um, and to engage in also altruistic behavior, right? It's not always even 
um, that it's going to come back right in in some favorable way to us right there's some there's some kindness and compassion and dare i say love that is kind of intrinsic to human beings and without which the human species would not have would so, not have survived and, and again that's the science actually shows us that and i think one of the things that i really appreciate about that essay and about the solidarity economy is it doesn't assume that human beings are demonic. It doesn't assume that human beings are angelic. Yeah. It says, look, humans tend to do what we're incentivized to do. We tend towards wanting nice things, right? Like we're not pathological, we're not sociopaths, although there is something about that 1% right. that we ought, to, <laughs> we ought to think about the magic of the, we are the 99% and who the hell are those 1% sociopaths that, tend to end up as CEOs of transnational corporations. But the point is, y'all, that the solidarity economy framework says, let's incentivize the, the kind of things and the virtues that we say that we want. And to me, that's something I think that is incredibly both inspiring and actually quite practical. I also yeah. want to let you know, Emily, we've had some uh, great comments in the chat I want to get to. Uh, uh, Z Manny asks, what role does grassroots community media play in these communities in your experience? I think that's a great question. And I'm going to ask you as a both theorist and a practitioner in your local community, grassroots community media, uh, what role, if any? Good question. I'm not very well qualified to, um, to answer that. Certainly not where I, I work, which is in the lower valley of the the Connecticut River Valley, Lower Valley, which is where the urban centers are, there is no, <laughs> there is not much community media. And certainly the community media that exists has not cottoned on to solidarity economy. Whereas in the Upper Valley, which is where the five colleges are, there's lots and lots of media that really does. Uh, play an important role in in um, promoting these ideas and yeah, um, you know but uh, where uh, I am uh, not not so much. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you for the questions, Imani, and for the candid answer, uh, Emily. You know, I have the privilege of living in Humboldt County, uh, California. Uh, what we laughingly call people in San Francisco Bay Area is the real Northern California, right? Like it's very rural, uh, but it's also remote. And so for us, media is a lifeblood. Why? Because like, we just don't have the kind of corporate, like corporate media can be consumed, right? But the co local community radio, the, the there's still, you know, a local newspaper that is like thriving. There's, there's all sorts of local community radio that is non-corporately filtered uh, that plays a vital role. And I can tell you, I myself, uh, have been both a, a, a content creator and still am on our community radio station. And it's been a vital lifeblood for us. Uh, so Z Manny, what I would say is to quote Jello Biafra, uh, the co-founder and lead singer for the Dead Kennedys, don't hate the corporate media, become people's media. And that's what we're trying to do here on Redneck Gone Green. I want to turn also to Catherine who asks, is it possible for a solidarity economy to exist alongside a capitalist system or is it either or? And I got to tell you, Catherine, like you have teed Emily Coano up because I have heard her uh, answer this question. Emily, what do you say? Either or? 
Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I would say solidarity economy exists now, right? The, it's just not very well uh, connected up so that we can see it and perceive it as a different system. But these practices exist all around. I mean, uh, a couple of ways in which probably many of us are already engaged in solidarity economy. Solidarity economy would certainly count uh, unpaid care work as an important economic uh, activity. And just because it's not waged, not paid for, doesn't mean that it's not vitally important um, and should be supported in terms of policies. Um, so probably we all and you know are carers in one way for our parents for our kids for our siblings for our neighbors right we all engage in that kind of stuff and why do we do it we don't do it for profit right we do it out of out of a sense of care and solidarity right um it and it makes us feel good um so there's there's lots of ways in which uh, people. I mean, a lot of people belong to a credit union, and I'm not sure how many people realize that a credit union is a a type of a cooperative. Um, whether or not that credit union really um, does good education about what it is, right? In theory, at least, or in structure, it is owned by its depositors. Right. And in um, fact, you, the, the remember credit unions. The board of directors are actually elected by the members, right? Yeah. Like, uh, so, so there is a democratic framework. It's usually not utilized, uh, yeah. in my opinion, uh, in my experience, right? Yeah. But they are. But the structure, but the structure is there. It is and absolutely there. There are a lot of things that could be a lot more democratic and a lot more. Um, yeah, in some ways, a lot more progressive that have kind of gotten absorbed into the system. So in my neck of the woods, there's a very large mutual, uh, mass mutual is a, a big, um, uh, what do you call it? The kind of, what is it? Life insurance company, really big. Um, and so they started off, it was people coming together as a mutual society, pulling their money, um, for for funerals and burial services, right? And there is a way in which um, they're so big now; they've a little bit lost the, that those those roots. Um, yeah, there's a lot of examples like that, but the potential is there, right? For them to be much more democratic and accountable and transparent, and you know, where where the stakeholders can participate in decision making. Emily, I'm going to circle us back. Earlier, you talked about the Wellspring ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And for those who are uh, watching, uh, uh, you're going to actually get a chance to see it. But I'm going to invite you to read it out for those who are listening to the podcast. Tell us a little bit more about the ecosystem. There yeah. In so, so I would say this is particularly important if you are engaged in co-op development and struggling underserved, marginalized communities, which is where we are. And that is our mission, right? Springfield is, uh, you know, your typical deindustrialized city that is really, is really struggling. Um, majority uh, people of color, um, large immigrant population, um, you know, the usual, right? Um, in the Upper Valley, right where that I mentioned where the, there are the five colleges it's a different world 
it's just a completely different world. And co-ops thrive in the upper valley. Um, I believe if we ran the numbers, we would have one of the most co-op worker co-op dense regions in the entire country, given that we're relatively rural. Um, they don't need this ecosystem, right? <laughs> but but the folks that the communities that we're working in, they need this kind of support. Um, so yeah, we found in in helping to uh, to jumpstart to incubate these co-ops, there is a need for we provide some of that co-op business TA technical assistance, but also there are others like connecting them to other to lenders, to other people who have other kinds of business. Um, technical assistance, whether it's co-op or not, because there's a lot of lessons uh, and skills that are just common to all businesses, whether it's a co-op or not. Um, we know that we need to build that public sector support and supportive policies. Um, so engaging with city council and on a statewide level, we're starting to build that out, um, that, that movement in Massachusetts. Um, we know that a lot of our folks, a lot of our workers really need uh, various kinds of social service supports, whether it's transportation or childcare or housing or mental health support. And um, we've been trying for many years to try to build those connections with social service providers. There's many, 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 um, but to, to be able to do a warm handoff instead of just a cold referral. Um, so building those relationships is important. Uh, from the get-go, we uh, were very deliberate about building our table, not only with the anchor institutions, but also with community organizations and labor organizations. So we always want to make sure that they had just as much voice as the as the anchor institutions. Um, but and then, and so that's the last category, just building these the relationships with a large large institutions. Um, I would say um, this, we, we've gone beyond this in some ways. So we do talk about a co-op ecosystem, but we also expanded our mission a couple years ago from uh, uh, developing cooperative businesses to also supporting the development of solidarity economy initiatives. Um, for people that don't know that terminology, we'll call it a cooperative community initiative. Um, because in our neck of the woods, it's still quite a, it's still not a well-known known term. Um, you know, but we have found, let me just say why, um, just even, they, these are valuable in and of themselves. Like what can communities, what can folks do for themselves, um, especially collectively? but also trying to build the on-ramp to either become a worker in a worker co-op or a group that might think about starting up their own cooperative business. Um, most people that were, most of the communities, like people are not ready to be able to do that. And so having some experience with some kind of a, a cooperative initiative is, an, is we see that also as an on-ramp to the cooperative business development and also the workforce, right? Like worker owners. So uh, this literally leads into a comment that Kelly made that I want to lift up. Kelly observes scarcity or the idea of scarcity 
drives so much of the greed. As we look further into the climate crisis, could you talk about the solidarity economy and the community that can help prepare for the impacts of the climate crisis? It's, it's not coming, it's literally here and right. getting worse. Right, right, right. So, you know, there is scarcity if everybody wants to consume like the 1%. And there is abundance if if, if we share. Yes, if we share. <laughs> but also it's it's sharing, but it is also like not everybody can even share a yacht and a fleet of you know big cars, etc. Right. So there there, I mean, those are for some people, right? It it is a hard pill to swallow that we do have to think about the overall level of consumption that is often what people aspire to. Some people can't afford to consume at that level, but that's often, uh, that's commonly the, the kind of uh, level of consumption that people aspire to. And that that is not sustainable. It's um, not sustainable. Yeah. And Emily, I, like, because I'm going to grapple with you uh, a bit about this, because I would argue that if we take a look at Edward Bernays, the the, uh, and there, by the way, there's a special place in hell for Edward Bernays. If folks don't know about who that is, Jack, let's take a note. I think you and I ought to do a deep dive on Edward Bernays sometime on here on Redneck Gone Green. But I would argue that so much of the materialism and the consumerism that is hyper destroying the planet now is literally being created, right? Yeah. Like we're, it's yeah. like a crack addiction where the moment of acquisition is is what we we've we've been sort of programmed to want it's not the inherent act of having this cup it is to like oh i want to purchase this thing so it becomes like a crack cocaine addiction and it's just in the moment of acquisition so we just yeah and it's no accident right this is one of the kind of intrinsic problems of capitalism right businesses are all trying to get maximize their profits right and in order to do that they got to sell you stuff and so to crank up people's uh 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 aspirations of consumption is absolutely critical and intrinsic to capitalism you just are not going to get away and from it's it. not intrinsic to economics right the yeah, idea no, of no. producing and distributing yeah. goods and yeah. services that capitalism created that right yeah. in yeah. order for profit maximization because this yeah. idea if the narrative of homo economicus uh is is your driving narrative yeah. then that's the then the the consequences will follow yeah folks um, what i think emily and i are suggesting is if we had a different narrative about why who we are and what is the good life and i would argue this emily like you know we're told by the the ruling no correction, not the ruling elite. They're not better than us. The predatory class uh, <laughs> tries to say that people are lazy. They don't want to work, uh, et cetera. And I call bullshit on that because like it, my lived experience is people want to work. Yeah, if yeah. by work, we understand meaningful, productive yeah, human yeah. activity. Right. Uh, if you're going to do something that is lifted up and applauded and appreciated by your community and other people go, way to go, Emily. Like, yeah. You know, thank you for that. Like right. that feels good to us, yeah. right? It is. But only they don't want to work on something that is 
just awful and alienating and frustrating and you have no voice and you have no control and you have some yeah a terrible workplace right like that's terrible and you spend you know maybe a third of your life in that that place it's a, it's really a terrible thing but i do want to get back to the climate change thing in solidarity economy i do think solidarity economy has some thoughts about ways forward um you know the fundamental true it's the narrative it's the very fundamental logic of what it, solidarity is about right that we um we exist and we live and we work and we uh we socialize in order to meet our own needs, which are both material and immaterial. And right now it's so skewed towards the material needs and more and more and more. Um, so, and that is driving us this climate crisis, right? It is unsustainable. And so that's part of it, right? Like um, understanding that a really basic part of, of human needs, right? Just like shelter and food and clothing, is that need to connect with each other. And so if we spent a little less time working in order to buy stuff and spending more time connecting with each other, uh, there is this moment here where this, uh, that, that I think is kind of interesting to think about leveraging, right? The Surgeon General has uh, declared that there's this uh, crisis an epidemic of loneliness, right? And there's all kinds of statistics about how it shortens your life and leads to heart and this, that, and the other, all kinds of diseases, right? Um, and solidarity economy is about those human connections, which in some, in so many ways, capitalism um, isolates us, right? And we get just absorbed in the work and the earning and the purchasing, right? The consumption and, and not the connecting and the community and being with other people. Um, those things don't cost anything, and it doesn't. It doesn't uh, need to draw on the resources of the of Mother Earth, right? Like hanging out together, um, and so that's a lot of what solidarity economy is about, right? Is and what's what I love about it is it is again, it's not actually new. It's a return to how all humans once existed. And I, I like to say all the time, I'm a I'm a guest on Weot Ancestral Territory uh, here in far northern Humboldt County. Uh, but what I do know is that I, just like Emily and you, the listener viewer, we all descend from indigenous peoples. Uh, all of our ancestors once lived in balance, in right relationship before, and usually it was the enclosure movement of either uh, imperialists uh, and or uh, uh, others, which brings me to Z Manny's next comment, which is this logic of enclosing the commons to seize uh, uh, and privatize common resources, then base, quote, industry on gatekeeping after that. He goes on to say, but there seems to be a deep desire for this more cooperative scenario. And I want to, I've heard you talk about this before, Emily, in the so-called tragedy of the commons. And I want to invite you to, to break that down a little bit. Is it really true that, that people can share the commons or is there going to be this constant ultimate destruction of the commons if, if, if folks are not forced uh, to do something? 
So if people know the work of Eleanor Ostrom, she's, uh, she won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, some years ago. Um, her work was looking at the, at the commons, right? And she really decimated that tragedy of the commons um, piece. Um, she did um, research into these um, common pool resources that were collectively managed. So for example, fisheries and forests and uh, found that if there are no rules and it's a free for all, it is pretty likely that there will be this, like the temptation to, um, to take more than your share, right? Which will destroy the commons is likely to happen. So if you are going to create these commons, um, there do need to be clear, well-known rules um, and there needs to be surveillance or there needs to be an awareness of if somebody violates those rules and there also needs to be some consequences and right. without that there will be abuses so i i think what's brilliant about that is saying absolutely there are uh there are societies that have used a commons framework for millennia very 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 successfully more successfully than managed through private private hands, but we shouldn't be all Pollyanna about it and just think, oh, we're, we're just angels, right? We're just, we're just good and we're loving and we're sharing and caring. We are that, but um, we also have to be realistic that we do is, need at the same time, so, you know, policies and rules and everybody needs to know what they are. And if somebody abuses, you need a way to know that and for there to be repercussions. And that's why I would argue, Emily, it's important that we incentivize the kind of conduct that we want to see. It's about systems. Uh, and I want to lift up, uh, Catherine uh, responded in the chat. It was like that, that is the, the sharing when during World War II when I was a girl. Rationing caused no real conflict because we just shared what was available. And I think that there is something to that, right? And And... Uh, I am now noticing, Emily, that the, the time has just flown by. We've been at it for an hour. So I do want to give you an opportunity and an invitation uh, for any final thoughts or closing remarks. Well, I guess I would, I would close by saying that, um, circling back to what you opened with of hopefully seeding some hope. Um, I, I think these are really dire times. I think these are really scary times. I've been cynical since I was very young. Um, and so whatever, whatever kind of crises came, never particularly worried me. But now, right now, I am worried between climate change and this, um, the threat of fascism and this kind of virulent um, fanning of hatred. Um, and nativism is is really scary. Um, and for me personally, working on um, building solidarity economy is what uh, keeps me sane, right? Like I feel like I'm doing something. I feel like it is hopeful. I feel like um, this is a moment that is so urgent uh, 
to be pulling together and building this other world and connecting the dots. There's a huge foundation to build on. And no matter where you are, no, no matter what you do, you can engage, right? Even if it is just being a little, uh, a little more um, kind, a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more patient, a little bit more cooperative, a little bit what, you know, that's part of it, right? How we are as human beings, um, capitalism will feed and, and, and incentivize and nurture that homo economicus, but there is within all of us, the homo solidaricus, right? There is that, that turning towards all that good stuff, our are better angels. And um, that's part of building the solidarity economy. And, and even if you feel like, oh, there's no co-op near me, or there's no community land trust near me, or there's no, like, you can practice this just in the way you are and the way you are with other people and the way you treat the earth. Thank you so much, Emily Kawano. Folks, we've been talking to Emily Kawano, who's the co-coordinator of the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network and co-director of the Wellspring Cooperative Corporation that are incubating and seeding solidarity economy practices and principles across her community in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, next week, we will be joined by Dr. Anna Malino. We'll be talking about national single payer. In the meantime, I'm going to ask everyone, please like, comment, and share. Our audience is getting larger, stronger, and better organized. And I believe that together we can not just, like, we can co-create the world that we so desperately need and so richly deserve. Peace. <laughs>